Well, folks, Shaw Jerry Adams, Irish, and as I record this podcast on a lovely sunny Friday morning, after another night of riding here in West Belfast, I think it's pertinent to look at how all of this developed. And, you know, it's clear that the leaders of unionism, the DUP particularly, present leaders and past leaders, are singing off the same hen sheep as they assess the tensions around the union's rejection of the Irish Protocol. And Peter Robinson's assertion in a recent newsletter article that we, I quote, are perilously close to a line which, when crossed, will lock us all into a pattern all too familiar to my generation. That would be quite rightly bounced upon and pounced upon by political opponents and sections of the media if it was said by a representative of Sinn Féin. The DUP leader and First Minister Arlene Foster told RTE that, I quote again, it is dangerous when people think they're being sidelined and not listened to. And Peter Robinson says that unionists are more alienated than I have seen at any time in my 50 years in politics. Of course, he omits the anti-civil rights campaign in the 1960s, the pogroms in 1969, the UWC strike in 1974, the DUP-led strike in 1977, the reaction to the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985, the uproar and rejection of the Downing Street Declaration, the subsequent rejection of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And his claim that there is a danger that for some unionists all of this will lead to an estrangement from the political arrangements that may then be bented more robustly. When that's taken with Arlene Foster's warning of danger, we have to take it seriously. And that's particularly because interested people will be very mindful of the relationship between political unionism, its use of language, the role of paramilitary groups like the UBF, the UDA, and Ulster resistance during the conflict. Words matter. Leaders who allow a vacuum to develop cannot be surprised of others fill it. Those who deliberately create such a vacuum for their own narrow political ends are playing with fire. The late David Irvine of the PUP was clear in his denunciations of the DUP's role in exploiting loyalist anxieties. His successors would do well to read his words. Now, Arlene Foster has spoken a number of times about leaving the North in the event of a yes referendum vote for a united Ireland. She talks about being comfortable now, living in Fermanagh, even though nationalists are the majority, she says. But she goes on to say, I cannot see how I could be British in Fermanagh and the United Ireland, because by the very definition, you're no longer British because you're living in an all-Ireland state. Now, I see no reason for Arden to leave Fermanagh. That will be her decision, of course, not mine. 
but Fermanagh is our home place regardless of its future constitutional status. By anyone who suffered during the conflict and survived as she has, would voluntarily leave such a beautiful, peaceful place simply because it would be part of United Ireland is worthy of deeper analysis. And maybe Arlene should elaborate on all of this. I've lived all my life under British rule, which I resent and reject, including decades of British military occupation. I've been denied my civil rights, including up to this day, my Irish language rights. I've been imprisoned for years without charge or trial, censored, assaulted in the streets and in custody. I've been shot. I live to this day under death threats. My home has been bombed, but I've never ever thought of leaving because this is my home place also. It's also the home place of the handfuls of young people, some of them children, who have been involved in civil disturbances. They will have no option but to stay. What future will they have? Why have they engaged in these attacks? Why, when protests are organised, are they organised close to interfaces? Why are the PSNI being attacked? Now, unionist leaders say it's because of Bobby Story's funeral. Nonsense. In his newsletter article, Peter Robinson spoke of the odour of betrayal in the air. That odour comes from an English government that imposed Brexit against the democratic wishes of the majority of the people here. It comes from the DUP's rejection of the democratic vote of the people who wanted to stay in the European Union. It also comes from a DUP stance that made a mess of every subsequent Brexit negotiation before being abandoned by the Tories when they signed up to the Irish Protocol. And yet, Boris Johnson, the great betrayer, is embraced by the DUP leader when it comes to the North. Does Boris Johnson care about young loyalists? Of course not. Do unionist parties? Do we? We cannot define these kids, these children, in many cases, as the others. There are children. We cannot stand idly by and allow them to be exploited and used by uh, more sinister elements. So what do we do? Well, first of all, policing and the policing response has to be very, very even-handed and fair. It's not enough for leaders to wind up the situation and then to have led people up to the top of the hill to condemn them, to vilify them and to step back from them. They can't have their cake and eat it. So there is a need for temperance and for, as Alex Maskey, the Kionkoria of it, the, the channel said, for people to moderate their language and to be tolerant and respectful of each other. But also, and significantly, 
all of this, all of what we're saying at the moment, deplorable though it is, depressing though it may be, is an ongoing response to the process of change which is underway. The DUP are fighting next year's election now, but they're also uh, responding to the changes that have happened in the recent past due to an English government and mindful, as I am, of their role in that, they should be embarrassed and scundered by the way they support, embrace Brexit, Boris Johnson and all of the rest of it. And also the way they have abandoned people and working class loyalist and unionist areas like Sandy Row and Deschanko and other places. So what then remains to be done? Well, the process of change must continue. The process of change managed properly with everybody playing their role can bring about a better future for everyone. So whatever about the challenges in the short term around these issues, let us be resolute on the need to keep moving forward to make this a better future for everyone. And now to a, a different topic. Cast your mind back as you listen to this podcast to Dublin 105 years ago. Paul Pierce and James Connolly had stood at the entrance of the GPO in Dublin and issued the proclamation of the Irish Republic to the people of Ireland. And hundreds of men and women, I think about a thousand two hundred and all, had then moved to occupy strategic buildings and locations across the city. For several days they were involved in a deadly battle with the huge numbers of British soldiers using heavy machine guns, artillery and guns of the British naval ships in Dublin Bay. British Army barricades were across many city centre streets. Much of Dublin's city centre lay in ruins. After five days of fierce fighting with the GPO in Saxville Street, now O'Connell Street, in flames, the volunteers were forced on Friday evening to evacuate that position. There was a British Army barricade at the top of the street where it joined with Parnell Street. The O'Rahilly led a failed charge to break through into Parnell Street. The O'Rahilly was a remarkable man. He was against the rising, but once it was going ahead, he said, I have wound the clock, so I must be there to see it strike. He was wounded in that charge to storm the barricade and he was to die against the side wall of 25 Moore Street after writing a last poignant letter to his wife. Meanwhile, the wounded James Connolly was carried on a stretcher and under constant machine and sniper fire, the GPO garrison made its way across Henry Street to Number 10, Moore Street. They broke through the outside wall of Number 10 and began tunneling their way through the terrace 
of the houses. The next morning, Saturday, five of the signatories to the proclamation, Padraig Pearce, Sean McDermott, Tom Clark, James Connolly and Joseph Plunkett met in number 16. There they discussed their next steps. Surrounded on all sides by British forces, with no prospect of success, and concerned about the ongoing risk to civilians, the leaders reluctantly decided to surrender. They knew they were likely to be executed. <coughs> According to Joseph Sweeney, who was there, Sean McDermott later told a meeting of the Moore Street Volunteers that this was only the beginning of the fight and that all the leaders would be executed. He added, But it's up to you, men and women, to carry it on. And he was right. Decades later, Moore Street and the lane surrounding it, the battlefield site, stand alongside national monuments in other states around the world where the right to independence and freedom was fought for. It is, as the National Museum of Ireland has described, the most important site in modern Irish history. Regrettably, successful Dublin governments have taken a different view, preferring to back private developers whose plans would see the destruction of much of this iconic area. So currently, a second battle of Moor Street is taking place. A company called Hammersons is about to lodge a planning application for a development plan that would ruin the battlefield site if it's given the go-ahead. Relatives of the signatories of the proclamation have come together as the Moor Street Preservation Trust and have begun releasing details of their vision for a 1916 historical cultural quarter. Their proposal, which is expected to be formally launched in the next month, will reflect the aims and ideals of the men and women of 1916, while supportive of the traditional trading uh, customs in that area. In recent weeks, they have published architectural and conceptual images of what the Moore Street battlefield area would look like. Their plan sees the restoration of the Moore Street Terrace and the adjacent lanes to make it a place of culture, respecting the history of the area, ensuring that visitors and local people enjoy it, and at its heart create a living museum, which will educate and encourage research into this important part of our revolutionary history. Sinn Féin too has been arguing for the area to be protected. We're not on our own. Other TDs from other parties have come forward, but two weeks ago, Sinn Féin TD Angus O'Snodig published a bill in the Oireachtas to give legal recognition of Ancahru Culture 1916, the Moore Street Cultural Quarter. His proposal calls for the creation of a management and oversight company and the establishment of a permanent outdoor market within Moore Street, which is Dublin's oldest food market. Speaking in the Dáil where the bill Past second stage, unopposed, and that goes into committee stage. Chakta Osnodig said, This bill would enact, when enacted, would demonstrate that we, in fact, value Irish history, culture, and the memory of those who died for Irish freedom. And Kaharu 
will be tasked with the preservation, restoration and management of the cultural historical quarter. In the next few weeks, a ministerial advisory group is to make a report to Fianna Fáil Minister Dara O'Brien on the future of Moore Street. While he was in opposition in 2015, O'Brien published a bill which had the aim of preserving the Moore Street site and called for it to be designated as a historical quarter. However, his reluctance since he came into power to engage with the relatives on this issue has raised serious concerns that a developer's plan will be given priority over the needs of the local community and the future of this iconic historical area. The Moore Street Preservation Trust's plan for the area is well advanced. I look forward to its publication and I urge everyone to support the efforts to protect and preserve Moor Street, the battlefield site. So Shinma Major Karja, stay safe, Gunyiri and Ta Libsha Gulyar.